Welcome back to the Word Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and before I introduce this episode, I want to give a massive thank you to Caitlin Rosario over at Metricus for giving me a platform to talk about bold and being more than just the podcast guy. If you've ever wondered what I really do other than record this podcast, you can dive into this interview by tapping on the link in the show notes. It's also over on my LinkedIn page. Now, in this episode, I'm joined by James Last from boutique investment manager Mayfair Capital. We recorded this the day after the UK returned from the August holiday period when many RTO or return to office policies kicked in. We talk about what keeps Mayfair up at night, how they're dealing with the rapid pace of change in office customer demand, and the changing risk profile of office assets. James is bullish on space as a service, maybe why we get along so well, and he gives some insight into their future-leaning investment strategies. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you won't cover, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. Even better, if you send me a voice note with your question, we may even feature you on a future episode. Drop it in a LinkedIn DM or just ask me for my WhatsApp and we'll get it sorted. Jeff, let's kick it. Welcome back to the Word Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. Today, I'm joined by James Last, Head of Special Transactions at Mayfair Capital. James is also a fellow alumni of the Real Innovation Academy. Shout out to Anthony Slummers and Dror Poleg. Mayfair Capital is a boutique UK-focused real estate investment manager wholly owned by Swiss Life Asset Managers, one of the largest owners of real estate in continental Europe. James's brief is to build the business's capabilities in value-add real estate investment. Now, prior to Mayfair, James was a fund manager at Schroeder's where he spent 12 years with previous stints at both Savills and Alsop, and he's a master's in real estate valuation and law. James has a background in real estate transactions, asset management, and development with a particular emphasis on the revitalization of tired buildings and the rejuvenation of areas on a larger scale to create people-centric, inspiring environments. He's currently focused on a range of strategies, including the repurposing of tired buildings to maximize carbon efficiency and adopting space as a service woohoo, as a way to drive value across a range of sectors, such as the workplace and self-storage. Welcome to the Workbook Podcast, James. Thanks, Caleb. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed our mini chats over the last year as we've picked each other's brains, and I'm excited to have another one of them today and let our audience listen in. So, James, according to the Evening Standard, yesterday was the big day back to the office. Early figures showed a 19% jump in passengers on the tube network up to 9 a.m. compared with last Tuesday and 43% more on buses. The return to work picked up even more speed during the morning and between 7 and 8 a.m. There were... 277,000 taps on the tube, which is up 24% over last week, and up 50% on the buses, which sounds amazing. We're coming back to the office. We're getting back to life. But, and here's the big but, these are half the numbers of the BC days before corona. So, James, with headlines over the last year talking about many people not wanting to come back into the office, many occupiers trying to lure people into the office with food and snacks and all sorts of amenities, many occupiers are actually moving to a hybrid capacity. We've interviewed quite a few people on the podcast talking about their hybrid policies and guidelines. But then 60% in London, 60% of office rental income is tied to leases that are either going to expire or have a break clause in the next five years. There's been a lot of questions around what customer experience should be in office 
purposes and how landlords can repurpose assets for future demand. So my question to you, James, is what keeps landlords like Mayfair Capital up at night? What keeps us up at night? It's really the pace of change as, as much as, as anything else. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that we saw a, a big bounce back in in numbers coming in. The office isn't dead. It's just continuing to evolve. And that was an evolution was well underway pre-COVID. It's just that COVID has gone a light and accelerated those changes has been documented, but has also caused uh, a lot of businesses as well as individuals to pause and say, okay, well, how do we operate efficiently in an ever-changing world? And for us as owners and operators of assets, the challenge is how do we stay ahead of, of what occupiers want, especially in this phase right now where there's a lot of thinking going on and, and a lot of feeling out about what the future looks like. But as I said, this is well in train before we'd even heard of the word COVID and just trying to understand and interpret that is the main challenge for us as owners uh, of assets and that's only going to get more difficult we've got workplace environments where that are increasingly multi-generational what does the office look like going forwards when we've got a generation that's grown up socialising in the virtual worlds of Fortnite and Minecraft and that sort of software that enters the workspace and, and has a different way of, of living how occupied traditional office occupiers are used to. And how do we, how does the office need to continue to evolve to account for that? You know, it, it used to be, we've been dealing with structural change in our industry years now. It, it used to mean, okay, we know that e-commerce is challenging physical retail, so if we sell more of that and buy more industrial, we should be okay. And we know that the occupiers of workspace want greater flexibility and not all of them want to sign 20-year leases and some of them actually want to talk to the owners of their building more than once every five years when there's a lease event. We've got our heads around that, great. But I think just being an early adopter of occupier flexibility and adopting the service as a strategy or investing in working near home assets, no, that's not going to continue to, to cut it. We've got to be forward thinking right the way through. And I think that's our biggest challenge as owners of assets. Certainly, I agree with you. We talk about leaning into the future a lot on this podcast. And it's one of the things I've appreciated about our conversations over the last year, James. I know you're a forward thinker. And, and I'm just curious, you talk about a lot of the reasons to be up at night and to be considering, but what sort of questions are you asking internally as a team as you do lean into the future? Fundamentally, it's what do our stakeholders want and need and how, we, how do we deal with that? And, and for us, our, we're an investment manager. We're obviously looking very closely at what the underlying occupiers of the buildings that we manage want, but also what our, our investors want. And with our investors, it largely depends on their, their where they're on the risk. But fundamentally, it's really about the either the creation or enhancement or, or, or just maintenance of, of good quality, diversified income streams. And how, how do we ensure that we deliver that? Really, it's about putting the end use of our assets front and centre and understanding what they need and then working back from there. And and that's true across all the asset classes, particularly workspace, but all, but all the different sectors. How do we ensure that we have the right types of building in the right locations and deliver the right levels of service to ensure that we continue to attract and then keep occupiers in an ever more fragmented world and in a world where that occupier, be it, be it a corporate level or an individual, has an abundance of choice that technology has provided that, that didn't exist previously. So the whole concept of supply demand has, has changed over the past few years and making sure we get our head around that and address it is too. 
So what sort of, when we talk about the, the different levels of service, you did mention being an early adopter of flexibility, occupier flexibility. So I would like to understand what that looks like, but also what does that customer experience look like and from a service perspective? Well, I think I mean, so, uh, early adopters, the market forces you into them. We, we found with assets that we were managing straight after the financial crisis that what occupiers wanted from their, their buildings had, had changed. And, and at the time, it was probably more about flexibility of occupancy and not finding long leases than service particularly. But that, that evolved pretty quickly. And to make sure that we had sometimes challenging assets full, we had to be flexible in terms of how we offered space, what terms we offered it on, and that grew to occupiers wanting to walk straight in, not have to worry about signing way leave agreements. They wanted to have all the telephony and like, broadband. So really, it's about ease of access, and, and the concept of service has just continued to to grow from there as the end user continues to demand more from from their building and from the owner of their a fundamental shift which i think that the industry is largely getting its head round and for us it's really about how can we continue to listen to the occupier and understand what they what they need now i think it's clear it's not a one-way street there's been a lot of talk about the potential value disruption that this could bring. But I don't see this as similar to what's happened with physical retail, where shifts uh, to online ha- had literally caused the destruction value of a significant amount of those retail assets. What we're finding is that occupiers are generally prepared to pay for the amount that we need them to pay for the best quality of space with the highest service level. It's interesting. And I've heard that with real estate becoming more operational, the it's becoming more of a risky investment. But then at, at the same time, if this is what customers want today, then not being operational becomes a risky investment. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that the, it, it clearly if you're not servicing the customer, you're not giving them what, what, what they need, then your ability to maintain secure income streams is diminished. I, I think as an industry, we've got used to pretty quickly the underlying income that's been derived from our assets being very granular. You know, just look at the, the rise in demand from investors from our private rented residential and student accommodation, where in theory that income could all walk out the door tomorrow. Now, of course, it doesn't. But as an industry, we we continue to adapt and find ways of making our workspaces more appealing. And we're comfortable with that as a concept. Now, a moment ago, James, you talked about uh, working closer to home and investing in assets to enable that. So I'm curious, assets in non-CBD, what we call secondary locations, even though I don't like calling them secondary locations, but the assets in those non-central business district locations, do you have a strategy for that? Or are those assets treated differently from a risk perspective? I don't think that they're treated differently. I mean, traditionally, I've always found value outside of the CBD, be that right on the edge where you get competing uses or a similar rental price point wanting the same space. So the challenge has been, how do we find buildings that can accommodate a mix of those uses? Or if we can't, how do we drive value through change of use from, say, office and alternative use or vice versa? I think that uh, the concept of the third space is not being called is, is not necessarily a, a new one. We've found for, for many years that particularly, but not only, small and medium-sized businesses like to be located, some of them like to be located outside of the CBD for lifestyle choice reasons. And investing, if we talk about London, investing in, say, two zones, three to four, 
has been a, a, a lucrative strategy as we've seen that, that sort of lifestyle occupancy increase. And I think that is only going to continue. It's interesting for us from an investment perspective because a, a, a lot of the office stock in those locations was very poor to start with and a lot of it's been taken out of circulation for permitted development to residential. But I think in terms of the quality of the space that we're looking to deliver, it wouldn't be any different outside of the the, the CBD than, than in it because, again, it's about what customers want and, and they want to spend time in, in the best place. We're running a strategy at the moment is all about repositioning obsolete buildings to provide best-in-class workspace. And we're focused on doing that both in the CBD and outside the CBD to take account of the different ways of working that we've been witnessing over the last few years and that we're going to continue to witness. The repositioning of buildings that would otherwise be obsolete for a number of reasons. But basically, a lot of them, we find that the, the bones and the ingrained character that allows us to provide interesting space and a narrative that's desirable to to occupy. So that's like the, the, the starting point for us. We have to be in a position where we can create interesting space. Well, certainly, and it's been said more than once that if the office isn't providing an experience that helps people feel taken care of and be most productive and, and feel like they're doing their best work, then people are just going to stay at home, especially if they have a choice. And I was just chatting on the last episode with Darren Graver, Global Workspace Lead for WISE, and he talks about 80% of their employees want to come into the office zero to three days. So on the days that they're, they are coming in, it needs to be an experience that makes them want to get out of bed and, and come into the office. So that's it's great that you guys are taking that approach. And I'm just curious, though, when you talk about these assets that are obsolete, so to speak, how do you deal with assets that have no real scope for being able to improve the customer experience? We either sell them if we own them at the moment, or we just don't buy them. I, I think it's twofold when you're looking at these buildings. It's, do they fundamentally have the right physical characteristics in terms of volume, light and air, all the things that are pretty well documented? And then are they in areas with strong physical and digital connectivity? And if they don't have those characteristics, then they don't have a place in the portfolio. And to be shifted on. Okay, so James, the qualities I'm hearing are very good light and air and great connectivity and obviously be in a location that people want to, to be in. Is that right? Yeah, I think that that's right. And this is nothing n- new, really. I think it's definitely been accentuated. People look for certain things out of their, of their physical workspace. But ultimately, it's got to be a building that you can walk in and know that you can transform into somewhere that you'd like to spend time. And high floor to ceiling, natural light, of prerequisites really and then in an area that allows you to move around the city easily not too far from public transport nodes and obviously very physical connectivity are just absolutely crucial to be a, to, to, to give you the starting point to be able to create the product that, that, that you that we think occupies want. So James, in, in your bio, when I was reading it out, one of the things that it says that you're focused on is adopting space as a service as a way of driving value. And we touched a little bit of that here, but I, I just want to give you an opportunity to sort of talk about your strategy on space as a service a little bit more deeper. When it comes to the more conventional office, we a good example is 
an asset that we recently finished the repositioning of in, in Woking. Woking is a relatively well-established office market, but has always been considered pretty secondary as the satellite town to, to, to London. Uh, the quality of the office stock wasn't brilliant, but it has fantastic connectivity, both physical in terms of the, the road network, but also public transport and access to central London. So, and I can't take credit for this because it was purchased before my, my time at Mayfair, but the, the team took a, a redundant 1970s office building where the previous owner had looked hard at, at really knocking it down and getting a planning consent to replace it with a block of flats or a travel lodge. And they repositioned it to create phenomenal best-in-class office space for the first century occupiers and uh, the building has the bones to start with that allowed a repositioning to provide phenomenal space that what we think occupiers want it provides an environment that people actually want to spend time in it allows different ways of working from collaborative to, to, to more individual but also people are going to work together with some in, in an office environment and some outside and then it's about the levels of, of service we make the make life easy and comfortable for occupiers of of the building so there's a new user interface implemented that allows individuals to monitor and control air quality in their immediate environment and change up coffee and food waiting for them when they arrive at the building book cycle lockers or studio space or tables at local restaurants and just control access to different parts of the building as, as well and that one was really for us because especially in these third space locations we think it's going to be really important as a way of driving income from the building by repurposing that building rather than knocking it down and starting again not only did we provide high quality space into a into an undersupplied market we made a very significant embodied carbon saving and that that is a key part of our, of our strategy to, to reuse assets rather than, than knock them down and, and start again. Yeah, this the Woking asset, you guys have done a phenomenal job. I know we did a piece of work on it for you and I got a chance to really dive into the details of what you guys are doing there and creating this friction-free environment, making the, the space flexible, bringing in the with the app and the F&B amenities. And of course, the location is fantastic. Just getting in and out of London is so easy. So I see how that was a, the perfect asset for the strategy that you're talking about here. That's a great example. But I want to go back for a moment because space as a service and flex being a big feature of space as a service, but the fact that commercial real estate and the risk profile around these long-term leases, and obviously we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but since you have a master's in real estate valuation, um, I, I just wanted to oh, throw no, That means I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope so. You, I, No, I know you do. You sound like you do. I know. But no, my question, James, is with, with real estate because more operational and in flex growing are, are obviously the valuation has been a big topic in this past couple of years and i think that topic's becoming more of a focal point are you seeing that the investor risk appetite changing or investor profiles changing to accommodate this new risk i, I think investors are really quite used to it and i know there's been a lot of debate about the the valuation of, of these assets so I, I think assets that have had a at least an element of a uh, very grand Granular income as part of the overall occupier mix is, is, is certainly not, nothing new. And I think it's been well recognised that that is a key feature of running a successful office building or, or campus or environment. And I definitely think that the valuation fraternity have got their, their, their heads around it. Now, where 
there may be traditionally some yield discount for for the granularity of that income. I, I think the solidity of it has been well recognised, and that that yield gap is probably closing. And even when it did exist, the extra income that you were generating from occupiers for providing that that level of flexibility and service compensated anyway. So we've never really seen it as as a threat to value, really more of a, a, a of an enhancer. From a personal perspective, I've always seen from single let assets because I think you have really binary risk over the income, but also very limited opportunity to drive performance through through active management. And if you've got a let building, however heavily multi-let, there's constant opportunities to engage in your occupiers, talk about leasing gears, now understand what, what they want and how the building can help them achieve that that you just don't get with a single let building. And this leads me into my next question then, and maybe you've already answered it, but it's being said that these single let assets are starting to carry greater risks because the occupier, if they go bust in, in a crazy volatile economy or when their break clause comes up, they could just leave and you have an empty building. Obviously, you get some lead time on that. But are, are you seeing these single-let assets carrying greater risk? And, and if so, what's your view on how to mitigate that? I don't think you can mitigate it from a tenant credit sense perspective unless you've got a government occupier. But the, the difficult thing to avoid is if you have a building with a 15-year lease and you own it for five years, from an institutional perspective, it's generally the whole period, and you sell it with 10 years left on the lease, unless something fundamentally changes with market conditions, your building is worth less than it was when you bought it. That may be fine for some investors who are just really focused on 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 income, but generally it's most investors I know don't start out looking to to, to lose money. And the advent of, of very long leases is it, it still exists, but not it, not so much in the office sector as as you all know. So it, it, from my perspective, I think it's quite difficult to mitigate the, the the risk. And there are still investors out there that love long leases, and there are still sectors where long lease is signed. I think the key thing for me, so the only asset that I've ever bought that had uh, a long lease was a block of service department where the value was greater with the tenant not there than the investment value of the income stream. So if you have that, then happy days, your risk is mitigated. Is, is it safe to say then that you're a believer in having a diverse mix of people in the building, and th- which is one of the reasons that you've got this space as a service uh, strategy? Yeah, very much so. I think uh, varying expiries, you know, from people who are in the building for a day to people who are in there as long as they want to be. So that's what I mean by flexibility. If you've, if you've got occupiers you want to be in the building longer term and are prepared to sign up for that, then fine. And then if you've got others that want to be there for a very short time, that's fine as well. It's giving you an opportunity to move that income on and therefore increase your underlying value. That's brilliant. Excellent. Thank you so much for, for coming on and, and being transparent with your strategies and your enthusiasm for space as a service it is refreshing to say the least for me and if you're listening i hope you're taking notes so i want to move into the quick fire round now and uh, you know how this works because i know that you're a listener of the podcast so james who inspires you in the in our industry and the whole future of work conversation there's so many from companies to individuals i've always been a big fan of, of Derwent london who are the leading lights in the in the london office space and a lot of what i've done throughout my career has just been copying what they've been doing in terms of that understanding how to reposition buildings and create good quality space. I think Anthony and Drew, you mentioned earlier, are doing in terms of both articulating what's happening, impacting on 
on real estate and bringing together a community of people from different parts of the industry to really think about how best to embrace that change is, is fantastic. And I'm also currently really excited about the work that, that Letty is doing, Letty, the London Energy Transformation Initiative, which is a body of architects, M&E consultants, all different components of the design team coming together to raise awareness and also set standards for the, the, the reuse of, uh, of buildings. The work they're doing is, is, is fantastic. That's brilliant. We'll give them a shout out in the show notes and as well as Derwent. Obviously, they are doing a hell of a job in London, transforming and repurposing buildings. Um, big fan of Derwent myself. My next question for you, James, is what podcast or media do you consume to stay up to date on the latest industry trends? Now, it goes without saying that I'm uh, a big fan of this podcast, Caleb, and I consume, I mean, a bit of podcast obsessive. Um, I listen to most of the industry one, both the UK and outside of the UK, and I'm a real fan of the AFIRE podcast with Donna Branson at base but does cover globally, which it gives a real different perspective for me who's somebody who's focused on UK investing. And outside of real estate, I tend to listen to podcasts. I, I, if I manage to grasp of what's being said throughout the episode, then I've done so. Azima's podcast, I think it's called The Exponential View, is covers all kind of topics which would ultimately have an impact on on the built environment and what we do, but is really far-reaching in terms of, of what it covers and generally too complicated for me, but, but pretty useful at the same time. Wonderful. We'll put links in the show notes for those as well. And lastly, uh, James, where's your favorite holiday destination? Frankly, anywhere overseas at the moment, because I, I, due to the various COVID-related lockdowns, etc., uh, I haven't managed to, to get out of the UK for a couple of years. That's not, not to say that I don't like spending time in the UK, but I think probably my favorite, the best holiday I've ever been on, and I, I was lucky enough to go on safari in South Africa a few years back, and I think that is still pretty much the most amazing thing I've ever done. So I'd, I'd for that. Did you get to see the big seven? I think we saw five, but it was hard work. We had to, we had, it wasn't like just drive down to the watering hole and, and they were all, they probably had to be tracked by real amazing experts in, in their field. An incredible experience. I actually, uh, in 2013, I went to South Africa and we went to Polanisburg and I did a safari and it was such a good time. One of the top experiences in my life. And I know the editor for this podcast, Jeff, is going to appreciate hearing this because he is from South Africa. Oh, brilliant. No, I'd love to go back one day. Excellent. James, thank you so much for sharing all your insights. Where would you like people to connect with you on social media? Probably LinkedIn is the best way to get hold of me. I'm not as prolific as you on social media. I need to up my game. So everybody connect with James on LinkedIn. We'll put the link in the show notes below. And thank you for tuning in for this episode. And until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. This podcast was produced by a podcast company. If you'd like to find out how we can help you with your podcast, simply email jason at apodcastcompany.com and check out our website at apodcastcompany.com. Thank you.